to today's episode of Juicing the Big Screen, your movies review and discussion podcast. I am one of your hosts, Joshua Tracy. And I am Corwin Heller. And we are here today to talk about the final two movies of our Oscars roundup, Causeway and Black Panther, and then segue that straight into our discussion on, well, who we think will win at the Oscars, since we'll be wrapping up our... Uh, the nominees. So, uh, Corbin Heller, are you ready to get started? I, sir, am ready. All right. Uh, do you want to start in New Orleans or in the fictional city-state of Wakanda? Uh, let's start in New Orleans. Very well, then. Uh, that means we're talking about Causeway, 2022's Causeway. Uh, the film is written, sorry, is directed by Lila Nugbauer. Uh, it is written by Otessa Moshfeg, uh, Luke Goebel, and Elizabeth Sanders. Um, this is a bunch of pretty new to the scene people. This is the directorial debut, uh, feature film wise, anyway, for Lila Nugbauer. I have no idea if I'm pronouncing that name right. <laughs> um, this is also the writing debut of Otessa Moshfeg, um, as well as Luke Goebel, um, as well as Elizabeth Sanders. So it's it's a full on all the way um, indie production. Everyone's brand spanking new. Uh, it stars Jennifer Lawrence, Brian Tyree Henry and Linda Emmond. Um the film had an estimated budget of fuck. I don't see it. So maybe it doesn't have anything visible. Yeah. I don't have a budget, nor do I have uh, details of, of box office. This is a small movie. So I'm not horribly surprised that it's less easy to see this type of stuff. It is an A24 vehicle, which is why I kind of expected really? to be able to find something. Yes, this is an A24 release. Um, but yeah, no, nothing nothing to speak of. This was actually shot pre-pandemic, if you can believe it. Film was shot in 2019. No shit. What's uh do you know why there was such a delay in the release? Uh no idea. Fair enough. Uh, yeah could, couldn't uh, hurricane barry actually apparently is the reason uh that things were delayed a smidge but i don't know I don't anything beyond know that what a hurricane barry is neither do i it sounds um, like a noho hank line from barry <laughs> <laughs> i can picture it yeah yeah it really does oh, you like a hurricane barry hurricane batty <laughs> we call you now hurricane batty yeah. Final season of Barry coming out soon. Um check it out. I hate we're talking both Barry and Succession are ending. It's well, how how thrilled are you though that we're gonna be getting to what should be killer Final series seasons. finales in yeah. the same like six months? I mean, oh my god. Hey, more room for a new series to just get a strangle hold on me. The Last of Us, baby. So I haven't started good. it yet. I'm excited. I got Kel back on it. After the nice. first episode, she was like, I do not like what these creatures look like. And I was like, they won't be in the entire show. 
And then she didn't watch the first six episodes. And then by episode six, I finally wore her down. So we're now rewatching it and she loves it. Good. Good. You, you got to play the game. I do have to play the game at some point, but I want to now finish the show before I try the game. Although That's I've fair. heard, I've heard it is a, it is a very, am, uh, uh, very reasonable and good adaptation of the game. Like not just a good show that has some kind of source material, but is a good representation of the source material, which is cool. Always nice when those two things marry up, which speaking of marry up, made me think of Mario, which is apparently also getting a lot of hype, which is weird. Anyway, I have such low expectations. Me too. But if everything else is great and the only thing that's annoying is Chris Pratt, I think the movie I could like totally live with. like it could still be a good movie just because yeah. Chris Pratt's in it. You know, I I won't let that kill it for me. Any anyway, we're here today to talk about or we're talking about this movie because it is uh nominated for a single Academy Award. And that is best performance by an actor in a supporting role for Brian Tyree Henry, uh, who, if anyone here has watched Atlanta, plays the role of Paperboy. Um, Brian Tyree Henry is fucking awesome. Super happy to see him getting some uh, big time recognition because he is well, a really fucking good actor mm-hmm. and full of charisma. He had like, oh, geez, a, a small fistful of scenes in the Feel Street could talk a few years ago, and he was amazing. Um, so it's just cool seeing him do more stuff. The film itself is about a U.S. soldier who suffers a traumatic brain injury while fighting in Afghanistan and struggles to adjust to life back home, which I would actually argue is not what this movie is about. But um, Corwin, do you want to start with this one or do you want to start with Black Panther? Uh, Man, I'll start with this one, I guess. Um, As usual, I had no idea what I was going to get out of this film. and based off of the early introductions to this uh, with Jennifer Lawrence and her character, I thought this was going to be a, as the, not tagline, but the movie description goes on, a PTSD battle, uh, similar to, honestly, a lot of movies that have come out in the past 10 or so years. Um, it ends up turning in, into a a nice little uh piece about friendship and grieving and loss and just (sighs) i found myself enjoying the interactions between jennifer lawrence and brian tyree henry a lot and i think that a lot of that had to do with the fact that brian tyree henry is by all means, a guy who can become a superstar. He is so good and so charismatic. Um, I am very excited to, one, watch the latest season of Atlanta, and two, follow where he goes next, because I feel like he would have a very good relationship with A24 um, and really be able to shine in the kind of work that they do. Um, But I honestly haven't seen a Jennifer Lawrence film since fuck uh, Silver Linings Playbook or what was the American Gangster? Like, I, I can't remember watching her in anything recently. Uh, um, Don't Look Up, which was not for Best Picture. Oh, last year. holy shit. I totally forgot yeah. that she was in that. Uh, for I would, I would say reason. she's probably the best part of that movie, honestly. 
I don't. I mean, uh, I did not enjoy that movie. So yeah. Regardless, um, in all, I, I don't think this is this film is much of a heavy hitter. I'm honestly surprised that it was, you know, something that got a nomination because of the relative. Not to say that he wasn't deserving of the award. He, you know, he is deserving of a nomination. But man, I just who who would have watched this movie? Who was this for? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I thought this was bad. Really, not good. Um, I think Jennifer Lawrence got hosed here not like by the academy i mean like by the director i think this is a really (laughs) poorly directed film and i think the script is pretty bad as well like there's some shots of the film that don't quite make sense and you can feel jennifer lawrence just trying to move through the (laughs) stage directions like the last the last shot of the movie felt so clunky to me where jennifer lawrence is like sitting down at that on the bench at the um the swimming pool and then she stands up, yeah. walks over, and gets in. And you could you could feel them having the camera pointed at her, saying action, and then her just like rote moving along with the like hitting marks, very much so just kind of hitting marks. And it feels in that way incredibly directionless, as though there was no one really at the helm and everything was done with more of a like uh perfunctory necessity rather than any kind of artistic vision because so much of the movie is that so much of the movie is just kind of meandering about scene to scene without really getting a concept of what anybody's struggles are i think brian tyree henry is able to fight off the uh, the death grips that is the bad direction and script the best um because this really plays into his strengths, I'd say. If anyone is unfamiliar with the show Atlanta, um, his character isn't a big, in terms of like performance, I mean, anyway, isn't a big character. He's a main character, but his performance is not very large. What the show has him be instead is a cool guy who doesn't usually say a lot, but commands the room in presence. And because this script doesn't involve a lot of him saying too, too much, um, obviously he has dialogue but it's not especially animated it's not he's not big in that way it plays into his ability to just be kind of a captivating dude on screen um because with the main thrust of the movie like when jennifer lawrence reveals that the main driving factor of this film is i want to go back to afghanistan (laughs) it's like 45 minutes into the movie and you're like that's what the movie's about that's insane i mean and and it it comes about in a scene where the doctor's like tell me what happened to you in afghanistan and jennifer lawrence is like well did you read my file and the doctor says and reads exactly what happened so that you know what happened and then goes but that's in the file i want to hear you say it and then Jennifer Lawrence goes into this whole little spiel of what exactly happened. And the doctor just goes, thanks for telling me that. <laughs> it's, I mean, it's such bad screenwriting. It's such incredibly bad screenwriting. At any point during this film, did you think, you know, Jennifer Lawrence, I think you should go back to Afghanistan. 
Because her whole thing is, I'm fine, I'm okay, I'm ready to go, this is my problem. And everyone else is like, you're fucking insane for wanting to go back there. Did you at any point think, oh yeah, you're fine to go, you should go? No, I'd never. And that's that, But that's the weird thing about the movie, is the movie makes two assertions that I think are critical. And one is Jennifer Lawrence is aspiring to go back to the military. And I know that she ends up choosing not to, kind of, we assume, but that's still a huge portion of it. And number two is when she eventually reconvenes with her brother, who was a deaf drug addict who is in prison living his best life and didn't know she was home and didn't know she almost died in Afghanistan, which is bananas. But there's a scene, that one scene that he's in, he essentially says, thank God for prison. Prison's the best. I'm so much better in prison. And the fact that this film is advocating for a return to to, to the armed services and and advocating in a kind of way for the necessity of prisons made this feel like a really weird right wing kind of movie. I felt like I was watching GOP propaganda film for a portion of it because it is weird. The it, the main character is a white lady who is it, it, whose best friend is a black guy that she will inherently never be romantic with. And the one time she kind of does, she says it's out of pity. Who's dying to go back into the armed services, whose brother oh is bars, who says prison helped him and is a good thing. It's it's a weird kind of right wing movie. And it takes place in Louisiana, which once you leave. Like the French Quarter kind of downtown area is excruciatingly white, which I mean, God, I it's a weird movie when you really think about what the messaging is on it. I found myself checking how much time was left. Like it was a short film. It was like, what, an hour and a half? Yeah, it felt so long. I think I checked how much time was left. I don't know, six times. <sighs> And then, but then at the same time, when it ended, I was like, wait, that's the end? Like, it, it felt so long, but also it felt like nothing really got concluded in a way. I don't know. I I, I mean, guess because... What was the conclusion? What, what did she learn? Hey, pools are, are crowded. I, I, and so I... I <laughs> I guess that's supposed to be part of the like PTSD thing, right? Like she's getting over some of that fear of crowds and sound, but it's also kind of strange because that doesn't appear to be something she is constantly grappling with. You know, like there's no scenes of her entering into highly uh, densely occupied spaces where she um, is suffering some symptom of her anxieties. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, it, in, because and that's the weird thing is like you want to give this a lot of leeway because it is an indie film, but we've seen a lot of low budget indie films accomplish quite a bit without much financing because you can have fun or fun might be a tricky word, but you can play with the shooting techniques and and cheaper equipment in such a way that and editing techniques now with editing software being so readily available that make the film feel more high budget than it is and. For them to not engage in it, they engage in special effects so little that Jennifer Lawrence, who is supposed to have had 
like her skull broken and brain hemorrhaging doesn't have a fucking mark on her body anywhere. Like this is someone who is was so severely injured that she had to learn how to walk again. And there is not a single sign of injury. And you see her whole goddamn body. Mm-hmm. And it's like, so that's so lazy. You're, you're telling me you were in what was, you know, like, like a Humvee that explodes and is burning to the extent that the person next to you is on fire and enough heat to cause your brain to swell and you don't have a single burn anywhere. Uh, yeah yeah and and it's none of those factors that come into the driving comes up a a little bit which i think is perfectly reasonable for the amount of driving that she does in the movie but but nothing else really i don't because think if if you're asking me what did she struggle with in the film it's kind of like dodgy i don't know because she makes a point of saying how she wants to get off her medication which is again feels like such a right-wing thing to be doing you know, and her doctor has to kind of like talk her out of it, but then she has no conviction. Wanna, I've she, never been medicated. I don't want to be medicated. I feel fine. And her doctor's like, well, maybe you feel fine because of the medicine. And then she has no conviction because she just keeps taking it when it's like, look, if you're really feeling like that strongly about it, just stop taking it. You fucking wimp. Um, you should keep taking your medicine like the doctor's prescribing you, but it's it's weird. Um. Anyway, if you're if you're saying that it, that's one of her goals, isn't that kind of life? Like, it's not specific necessarily to the scenario, and also not really played up on much at all. Her lesbianism is passing, literally passingly mentioned, um, and a complete non-factor to the film. It seems to be brought up just to give a reason for the two of them to fight later. I I don't know what her the PTSD angle is obviously there, but it's so underplayed, and they do almost nothing with it to such a degree that really the main conflict of the movie should not be the will they won't they romance between these two characters should mm-hmm. not be the main conflict of the movie, and yet it is the big second act conflict that needs resolution in the third act. I feel like it shouldn't be included whatsoever. Like you make the point of having her be, you know, a lesbian so that it completely removes any idea from your mind that this might lead to a romantic relationship. I think that's a good thing when you're trying to focus on friendship and that kind of bond that you have as friends rather than assuming this like every other film you've ever watched in your life is going to delve into some sort of romantic entanglement and then they ruin it by doing it anyway and then nothing ever really resolves like yeah they the the two of them kind of get good at the end and she moves in with him because he offered her a place to stay and he Offers up a lot of kindness real fast, but like you're willing to buy it because Brian Tyree Henry seems like a really nice dude. <laughs> but um, the offer to move in thing is is kind of weird for how fast that happens. Um, but anyway, they resolve that a little bit. But then there's stuff like they bring up the fact that Brian Tyree Henry lost part of his leg because 
of a car crash that he was responsible for because he was drunk driving and he's basically shown to be an alcoholic. No resolution to that. It just kind of gets brought up. That's kind of it, right? Do they ever come back to it? Well, uh, she does go out of her way after finding out, you know, hey, he struggles with alcohol and it led to the death of his nephew by bringing him beers to win his friendship back. Okay, yes, thank you. I, <laughs> I, forgot that, I forgot that was part of it. It is completely ridiculous, right? Yeah. And that's a, that's the but then that's kind of the movie. Like we can move on because it, it really is a series of ideas that would be an interesting movie that the film then kind of just abandons. It's unfulfilling. Actually, before we move on real quick, what did you think of Jennifer Lawrence in the film? Um, Stiff. Um, Like I was saying, like I enjoyed their back and forth, but that was more on, you know, the Brian Tyree Henry side. I don't know. She she was wildly uncompelling. Um, I know you kind of put that on the fault of director, uh, but she never did anything that made me feel compelled to, you know, get emotional on her behalf. I think she did a pretty decent job with the physicality of the role, like her physical stiffness, because it is that weird. And they, they tried using a lot of visuals to paint this distinction. She's okay with the like larger subset of a set of motor skills. Like she can run and move around and move her arms, but her like fine motor skills, like her handwriting and ability to hold stuff is a little bit difficult. Um, And she does that. I think relatively well, the problem I think is the everything else about her. I feel, and this is where I, I blame the director because we know Jennifer Lawrence is better than this. We, and Cause I don't yeah. think this is a very good performance from her. But I again, this is why I blame the director, because I feel like the director said something like, well, you know, you're a, a military lady who is a science person. She was a water systems engineer um, and and you're going through a mental thing. So you're very reserved. You're very formal. Right. But it's odd because it basically strips her of any humanity and personality, which I think it would be fine if you were the tough chick background character in like a 1980s Jim Cameron movie, but it's weird for that to be the main character of your film because inherently it seems as though the direction of her character was you are not a human being and your only thrust in this film is to get back to Afghanistan. But yeah, weird, weird movie. Um, You started at the top. So give me, uh, give me your, your, rating and review and we'll move on um it's a very mid movie it uh i w- i don't think i would recommend it to people because i don't think it it offers you really much of anything to glean from it i mean it's like if the whale didn't have brendan fraser um i guess like a two yeah, I think I'm going to go one and a half. I, I, I would go meaner if they weren't all rookies making the movie. Um, but I would. I, but I'm also going to be a little bit mean because 
there are some big actors in this, so your expectations might be a little bit higher. It's a weird movie. It's a very weird movie. Yeah. Um. All right, so then let's move on to, in terms of budget anyway, the exact opposite of this fucking movie, which is Black Panther. Uh, Black Panther, which was released this year, was directed by Ryan Coogler, and it was written by Ryan Coogler, Joe Robert Cole, and of course, Stan Lee gets a writing credit here, even though he is past and not involved in the writing of this film. Uh, the film stars Letitia Wright, Lupita Nyong'o, and Denai Gurira. Uh, that is how they are billed at the top anyway. Uh, the film had an estimated budget of 250 million smackaroos and a cumulative worldwide gross of about $860 million. So Jesus Christ. These movies sell, <sighs> sell, sell, baby. If everyone loves Marvel. Um, although I think that is starting to slip a little bit. The tagline for this movie is forever, which, um, kind of clunky because it, if I get why, but forever is in the title of the movie. So it's, it's a little bit awkward, I think, uh, not a fan. Yeah. Kind of meh. We're talking about this movie cause it is nominated for five Oscars. Um, we are most concerned with best performance by an actress in a supporting role for Angela Bassett, but the film's also nominated for best achievement in costume design for Ruth E. Carter, best achievement in makeup and hairstyling for Camille Friend and Joel Harlow, best achievement in music written for motion pictures, original song for a collaboration of Thames, Rihanna, Ryan Coogler, and Ludwig Goranson for Lift Me Up. And Best Achievement in Visual Effects for Jeffrey Bowman, Craig Hammack, R. Christopher White, and Daniel Suttick. Um, the film is about the people of Wakanda fighting to protect their homes from intervening world powers as they mourn the death of King T'Challa. Um, so Corbin started with Causeway. I'll start with this. I, I'll start with this. <clears throat> I do not envy the task of having to write a sequel film to black Panther for one, because of the death of Chadwick Boseman is obviously going to loom large over this movie. But for another thing, I think black Panther OG was one of the best, whichever phase that was phase like two phase three Marvel movies that they made. I really enjoyed that one. Um, and it's a little bit tough because of what made that movie so interesting prior to the exposure of the kingdom of Wakanda outside of um, or to the outside forces. Part of what made that movie compelling was how cloistered off the world was. And so now that Wakanda has uh, broader knowledge or is, is more broadly known to global powers and, uh, you know, an understanding of their science and technology is, is a little bit more readily accessible. It makes it, it, it loses some of that. Um, so again, I don't, I do not envy the task. However, Oh man, this is not great. I, I will say I am not a Marvel fan to start. So I'm, I'm already coming from a, a perspective of, I do not like what you do. Um, but this was a, 
This was quite a snore, I gotta say. Um, it's two hours and 40 minutes long, and it feels like every goddamn second of it. It's um, It's got three? Two or three funeral scenes. Um, It's got a lot of setup. And what I don't think is the most interesting... And again, I know why you have to do it, but I just, uh, it's not horribly compelling. It's got at least five acts for how much it tries to accomplish in this movie, which I think is partly a result of the fact that it is a, a sequel within a world that is ever expanding. There's so much more that I think they kind of have to cover so that you can be ready to progress all of these characters into storylines for future. Uh, team up movies, but it's it's not horribly interesting. And the actual threat that the actual bad guy of the movie, the the underwater um, James Cameron, Neymar. I don't give a shit. The the Navi. <laughs> I'm gonna stop uh, you right there. We don't care. I uh, true. But yeah, the the um the the Navi of the sea are they want to conquer the above world. It's basic. It, it's a weird like anti-colonial point, but where the black people are the con- colonists, and also all that mind shit. Yeah, it comes from Africa. Like it's a, it's a weird it's it was... a weird point to make, and then it's not horribly interesting. And the entire premise was, oh, we don't even want them to know about us to we don't even want to be involved to, well, we're just going to invade all of the earth and just take over. And I don't like Marvel movies. I find them far too campy. I find them far too reliant on one liners and zingers and little callbacks uh, I didn't see the first Black Panther and if I had more time in my life I would have watched the first one before watching this one um it's just I don't enjoy what they're trying to do with filmmaking because I feel like every decision in the film is based off of their bottom line and off of their ability to get more and more and more and more people to come watch these movies and then not just watch this movie, but watch any sequel that comes from it. I, I don't enjoy them. I don't think they're necessarily good for cinema. Um, and I, I don't think there was anything in this that was one meant for me, but two that really made me think like you and I love the technical aspect of filmmaking. We love the artistic side of filmmaking. We love the symbolism and the fucking lens changes. And just the little subtle things that people with a deep burning passion for, you know, every age of cinema put into their films because they love what they do. And I feel like this just isn't a movie made with any sort of love and compassion. It's just, 
it's assembly it's a board line meeting. filmmaking. Yeah. It's a board meeting. We watched a board meeting. I mean, and you're right. And and for this one, I think one of the, the soothing um, attributes to Marvel films that help satiate the appetite that people have for big blockbuster movies in spite of what is often weak scripts and phoned-in performances is the special effects and the action set pieces. And I don't know about you, but I didn't enjoy those from this either. Usually I can no. at least be like, well, those fights were fun. Like, even like, though the, the fight scene at the, the, like the big, big battle scene in Endgame gets ripped on a little bit for how cheesy it can be at times, it is undeniably fun. I don't think any of these were fun. Like, so this and Top Gun were the two mega AAA films of this past year, or, or two of them. But I think what makes Tom Cruise special is not only is he starring in and producing his own films, he fucking loves movies. He loves making movies. He loves just the creative process as much as he loves getting paid billions of dollars to do what he does. And you see that in Top Gun. Like Top Gun is a triple A blockbuster that has every action set piece you could ever want from a triple A movie. Like it is the quintessential summer blockbuster. But it's made with a passion that we've just been talking about. This completely lacks. It takes creative liberties over potential, you know, whatever you want to call the board meeting aspect of everything Marvel does now. And it shows so unbelievably hard. Just to illustrate your point, Tom Cruise, it might not be so evident now because Tom Cruise feels nowadays like the Mission Impossible guy, but Tom Cruise spent the majority of his career working, seeking out the cream of the crop directors to work with and doing whatever they wanted to do. That's how we ended up in Cameron Crowe's uh, Jerry Maguire. That's how I ended up in Martin Scorsese's uh, The Color of Money. He asked, he got Brian De Palma to, to make the first Mission Impossible movie. It's a fucking Brian fucking De Palma movie. Like, that was what he did. He worked with with um, Spielberg in, in uh, mm-hmm. uh, that fucking German film. I can't think of the name of. Something with a V. Vanilla, Vanilla Sky? No, that's Cameron Crowe again. It's not Valkyrie, is it? Uh... He was in Valkyrie. I don't think. I think that's a Spielberg Tom... movie. Uh, Minority Report. Oh, Minority Report's what I'm thinking of. Then who did Valkyrie? I feel like someone. Uh, I have no uh, Valkyrie. That was that movie, right? Like that is the name of the movie. Yeah, the the Nazi one. Yeah. Uh, it's that not was like directed it's... by Brian Singer. Oh, okay, okay, okay. Not that that's like an especially great movie. I'm gonna like ride hard for it. Is kind of a loser of a movie, but um, but still, like uh, Brian Singer, who made uh, The Usual Suspects, he has a really interesting career. Actually, if you go check out Brian Singer's career, it's it's not that it's a really good career. It's just a really weird and interesting career. And Tom Cruise kind of saved it, but that doesn't matter. Um, yeah, 
this movie, I will say the only person, the only two people in this movie that I think you can feel that from are uh, Winston Duke, who is great, and I hope people learn to appreciate that once these movies are done and he is more great. broadly recognized for, yeah, I mean, basically. And Lupita fucking Nyong'o, who I fucking love and I think is genuinely very good in this movie um the problem is the movie is suffocating and i don't think leticia wright has a fraction of the leading person leading character charisma that chadwick boseman had and that might be a wildly unfair thing to say because chadwick boseman is a multi-oscar nominated actor and leticia wright is pretty much known for um, some British productions like uh, Black Mirror and Small Axe and then Black Panther. Like, that's kind of it. But that's what Marvel asked her to do. So that's kind of the comparison that ultimately ends up getting drawn. And the movie puts her on the forefront in a really weird way. Uh, this talk about the plot of this movie feels impossible by the way and it's really not worth it because it is so much just table dressing for other movies down the line like it, it basically doesn't fucking matter um but the one plot point that i do want to talk about that really bothered me was angela bassett's death scene because the movie starts in what i think is a very loving tribute to chadwick boseman it starts with his death scene which was really um a harsh juxtaposition because it, there, there's no um opening production companies usually when when you start a movie you get like uh you know it's made by disney it's made by marvel it's made by 17 production companies you've never fucking heard of before and then you get an opening cold open and then you get title cards and then you get the movie this skips the production companies if you watched it on disney plus which i did uh, and go, it was straight into the beginning to the point where I tried to rewind because I thought I missed something. And that's Chadwick Boseman's death scene, essentially. Um, and then it, it it does a completely silent tribute to um, Chadwick with, with the uh, the Marvel logo opening. So you'd think with how towering of a death that is in real life, in the lives of the people who make these movies because they made the first one with him and made a few others with him. Um, And in the world of these movies, that that would be enough to be um, an emotional thrust for all the characters involved. And so when they get to Angela Bassett's death scene, it's it, I know it's not meant to be mean or not meant to like overshadow in any type of way, but it does feel like the weird messaging kind of, of like, yeah, Chadwick died, or King T'Challa died, and that was pretty sad, but that was like two acts ago, and we need a reason to escalate the stakes of things. But I don't think you did, you know? And I I think to have a real-world death that you had a big ceremony for be kind of overshadowed by an imaginary death that really wasn't needed for the film's plot to make sense seems a little bit disrespectful. Oh, did you have any take on it? You know, I didn't. Uh, 
I enjoyed the credit scene. I enjoyed the, you know, I don't know. Enjoyed is such a tough word with this movie because I didn't enjoy it. I understand what you mean, though. But I didn't give any second thought to what they did. Um, I'm trying to think if there's anything else really worth saying. Again, I, God damn it, do you? I just didn't give a fuck about the um the plot of this movie. It was I'll so you, grating. I'll tell you what. I watched this Thursday. No, I watched this Wednesday night. We recorded. And then I put it on and I watched for about two hours and 15 minutes and then decided, you know what? The only reason, the only reason I'm watching this film is because Angela Bassett is nominated and I have to. Angela Bassett's dead. I don't give a fuck what happens to the rest of this movie because I'm never going to watch another Black Panther movie. So I turned it off and boy, I enjoyed the rest of my night. Way more than I would have if I continued watching this. I don't know how it ends. I don't care how it ends. Nothing could happen over the last 30 minutes of this film that would change my opinion of this movie. It, it, it ends... There, there, there's a fight scene. There's like a big showdown on like a... Of course. Submarine kind of boat thing. Like, actually, I don't know if it's submerged. It's some kind of boat where the Wakandans like got... Namor and and the the Navi warriors to come out and it's a it's a big old Navi fight warriors. scene and it has like such a shitty ending where um Shuri is going to Shuri is going to kill Namor and then she's like I'll spare you if you don't be a dick and then he's like ah nah stabs her through like the gut and then she puts on she like is gonna die and then angela bassett comes out of the goddamn clouds and is like shuri live and she goes gotcha mom um takes the spear out of herself puts on the black panther costume and then um gets namor to look over and they were positioned conveniently right by like a uh, a ship so she it, it starts the ship remotely and the thruster that is aimed directly at them engulfs the both of them in flames but of course since Shuri is wearing the Black Panther costume she is a-okay or as Namor is uh, crispy um yeah and then he, okay. but he lives I'm pretty sure and then he like goes back down into the ocean and his wife is like, oh, Namor, why'd you do that? Or, oh, cousin. I didn't realize they were cousins. Whoops. Uh, and then Namor is like, no, 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 it'll be fine. It'll be fine. We'll uh, we'll get him one day. Uh, and then, then yeah, that's that's really that's most of it. It's not it's not compelling because it's not a good villain. The villain is basically. Hey, stop that lady who's making the vibranium detection machine to protect our vibranium resources. And the Wakandans are like, no, like, hey, I'm not going to kill a random person. We'll just hide her away. Cause that's what we also want. 
They're like, nah, don't trust you. Yeah, and then Nimoy's like, all right, well, if you don't kill that scientist, I'm going to kill you. And then he tries and fails. And then he's like, ah, we'll get him next time. But it's like, okay, if that was so important to you that you were willing to wage war with the entire surface world, why just give up? It, 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 it It's like you saying, it's like when you lose a fight and you're like, ah, it didn't matter that much anyway. The guy was just being dramatic. And it's like, but you started the fight. Like, clearly it mattered to you when you thought you'd win. And now that you lost, you can't just say it didn't matter because you lost. The stakes of this movie are garbage. Also, Julie Louis-Dreyfus is in this. It's weird that she's in it. I forgot Martin Freeman was playing an American and his accent's not good. Um, It's a weird movie. It's not great. Um, We really should move on. Uh, but last thing, because yeah. this is her movie. Thoughts on Angela Bassett's performance? She was fine. If this wasn't Black Panther, I don't think she would have been nominated. Yeah. Um, I think it's a pretty wooden performance. I'm actually really surprised she's nominated for this. If I had to pick an actor from this film to be Oscar nominated, I would pick Lupita Nyong'o. Easy. She is so goddamn charismatic every time she's on screen. Um, I think Angela Bassett is getting this nomination more akin to how like Pacino got his scent of a woman Oscar in that it's like you had a great career and never won this. So this isn't a very good movie and you're kind of weird in it, but have an award. And I understand why it happens. And we'll talk about it when we talk about this category, but it is, this is a lame award nomination to give Angela Bassett when she does have better movies than this. So whatever. Yeah. Anywho, anywho, uh, final ratings and reviews. I started originally. I'll start. This is a tough movie. We, Corbin and I often, I think give our recommendation or our star ratings with some degree of forethought as to whether or not you would recommend these movies to people. And it's tough because it's almost impossible to recommend somebody, a Marvel movie out of context. We're at a point where it's it's not that it's impossible, but it is going to severely limit your enjoyment of them, especially a sequel film, especially at this point in the, you know, for 15 years into this shit. You know, it it's tough to explain because like, you know, you're gonna have to even explain what Wakanda is or what Vibranium is or what Chadwick Boseman's character was. And they do such an interesting job in doing the black Panther stuff in the first one with a great villain character that is back in this movie for basically no goddamn reason. Um, that this is just, it's such a tough movie to try to sell, an, uh, someone on. I was telling just to Corwin, but my fiance, who's a, a, a pretty decently big supporter of the Marvel films and, even despite all of my pessimisms has been very on board for the franchise. Even she, this was the first time she was watching a Marvel movie and I got her and she looked at me and she was like, this is bad. And I was like, yeah, they all are. You're just seeing it now, but yes, it, it's, it's boring. It's dull. It's not well-written. Um, and the set pieces are not very fun. So with the length and all of the prerequisites to watch this movie, I think it's a one for me 
Sure, I'll give it a one. I I don't care. I I cannot emphasize enough how apathetic I am towards this film. Perfectly fair. Okay. Right on. So to that end, then let's talk about the Oscars. Yeah. Um let's where do you want to start do you want to do you want to save best picture for last or do you want to just talk about it first since that's first in our spreadsheet um let's let's work our way up to it we were here we're talking about angela bassett you want to do supporting actress and actor and then lead and then yeah that works all right so then best supporting actress the nominees are uh, Black Panther Wakanda, or sorry, Angela Bassett for Black Panther Wakanda Forever, Hong Chow for The Whale, Carrie Condon for The Banshees of Anna Sharon, and Jamie Lee Curtis and Stephanie Hsu, both for Everything Everywhere All at Once. Uh, Cor and I in the past have done a should win, will win. Um, we'll, I guess, retain that to a certain degree, but also just incorporate a ranking of the nominees. Uh, so Corwin, to that end, uh, do you want to start on this category and then alternate, or do you want me to start in this category and then alternate? Um, I'm fine starting. Do you want to just work our way from the bottom and just go oh, five up to and, one? Yeah, and yeah. just give our so totally. five. I'm putting Angela Bassett here. Like you said, kind of wooden performance. Nothing about it really made me think it was deserving of a nomination. Um, I had nothing there. Uh, do you want to go five, five, four, four, or just work my way through the list? No, just then... you go all the way up. Yeah. Number four, I have Hong Chow from The Whale. Um, I enjoyed her performance. I thought she did a good job. Um, and then Jamie Lee Curtis for her role in Everything, Everywhere, All at Once. I love Jamie Lee Curtis. I thought she was phenomenal in this. Um, but I think Stephanie. Hugh, shoe, shoe, shoe. Thank you. Um, is far and away the less talked about option, uh, from this or nomination from this film. When I think she had a much deeper and almost f- more fulfilling uh performance. Um, I had never seen her in a film before, and I, you know, like we talked about earlier with Brian Terry Henry. I am super excited to see where she goes from there because I absolutely adored the performance. And then Carrie Condon in Banshees of Sharon. I thought she was a force in that movie. Um, we'll get to other performances and overall opinions towards it. Uh, it's going to be up there because of I very much enjoyed the film. I thought she was one of the best parts. Um, a real tour de force, emotional per- performance and, you know, I think uh, I think it's a two-way race in reality between her and Jamie Lee Curtis, but uh, I'm very much pulling for her. I am with you. Um, for my rankings, I'll go same bottom two, Bassett five, Chow four. Um, I think Bassett will win this award because, again, I do think no this kidding. will get treated. I, I think it's going to get treated as a little bit more of a lifetime achievement kind of thing again just like the Pacino performance um because I mean I don't know when the last time anyone here has listened uh, listening has watched Scent of Woman 
<laughs> it is like the most 1990s attempt at a feel-good movie you've ever watched. And I promise you, it's not as good of a movie as you think it is. And just for reference, he beat Stephen Ray in The Crying Game, Robert Downey Jr. in Chaplin, Clint Eastwood in Unforgiven, and Denzel Washington in Malcolm X. Like, <laughs> Pacino did not deserve to win that award, but because he had been in so many classic movies, um, it was given to him as kind yeah, of a, yeah, we fucked you real hard for a long time for some reason. There you go. So I do think this will ultimately... Kind of like Leonardo DiCaprio with The Revenant. A little, although I will say his performance in The Revenant is at least good. And The Revenant, while sure. I understand it does have its flaws, I still think is a good movie. Whereas Scent of a Woman, I do not think is a good movie. <laughs> very, very fair. Six. Six. Six Oscar nominations for Pacino before he won for Scent of Woman. And he was nominated what for two they? awards in, in 93. So seven nominations and one win. Uh, the first nomination was for a supporting role, Godfather, and then leading yep. role, Serpico, leading role, Godfather yep. 2, leading yep. role, Dog Day Afternoon, yep. leading role, and Justice for All, supporting role in Dick Tracy. And then he won. He was nominated for two awards in 93, lead for Scent of Woman, and supporting for Glengarry Glenn Ross. And then 17 years went by, and he was nominated for The Irishman for Best Supporting. Ugh. Which I will say, although that movie is weird, that is a really solid Pacino performance. I have completely cast that movie from my mind. I just watched Heat for the first time maybe ever, I realized while watching it. Um, I love that movie. It's a weird movie, and... Pacino alternates between being fantastic and being absolute garbage in that movie. He he is there is no in between in that movie. Yeah, I was reading that apparently at one point in time, great ass. So apparently at one point the original script had Pacino's character as a cocaine addict, and Pacino liked that idea for the character and played it like that, even though it's not part of his character in the final version of the script which is meant to explain the highly erratic behavior, but man, what a weird performance. And anyway, Mike, um, Michael Mann wrote a sequel and released it as a novel. And yes. it's apparently excellent. Michael I Mann, I really want to read it. Michael Mann is a fantastic filmmaker who does not. I, I agree. Um, also RIP Tom Sizemore, who was in that movie. Mm. Uh, also, RP Time Saws more from the one of the best episodes of It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. <laughs> just I will always remember day. you as the splitting over like a coconut guy. I just watched that scene the other day. <laughs> I hadn't, so I, I didn't realize. I think that, that part of him being a truck driver is supposed to be a little nod to that first time you meet him in Heat where he was driving a truck. Because every, as he was driving the truck, and every time he looked over at, I think it was Val Kilmer, if not Wayne Grow, I kept wanting him to say, split me off like a coconut. Um, it doesn't matter. Number five is Angel Bassett. Number four is Hong Chow. The top three here, I am in utter conflict over. Um, all three of these performances offer you something really different, and all three of them are fantastic. Mm -hmm. Uh, Kerry Condon gives you a very like repressed woman who is trying to find her own fulfillment in life and, uh, kind of be a mediator in the whole situation. But Jamie Lee Curtis plays such a great comic relief heavy and stephanie shu obviously doing a great job at being um 
<laughs> massively depressed without being annoying. Because oftentimes I think these like teen college characters that are, are kind of angsty also have those performances come off as kind of like, oh, the youth constantly whining. And she negates that entirely. So I kind of want to pick Stephanie Shu. And I'd be go maybe, so happy if she won. I kind of want to pick Shu. I'll, I'll pick Shu. I'll go three Jamie Lee, two Condon, one Stephanie Shu. Okay. I'm All right. Back. So supporting actor, well, I guess we'll keep, we'll alternate. So you started on actress. I'll start on actor. Uh, the nominees are Brendan Gleason for the Banshees of Sharon. Brian Tyree Henry for Causeway, Judd Hirsch for The Fablemans, Barry Kogan for The Banshees of Anna Sharon, and Kei Kwan for Everything Everywhere All at Once. Um, this is a really interesting top five because all of these performances, this is always one of the strongest categories. And that's not to say that the men who act in movies are any better. It's more so comes down to the fact that there are more good supporting actor roles available than there are for actress, which is why this I think is a tougher pick than the last one. Um, but I will rank them as such five. I'll say Judd Hirsch. I loved that performance, but I will rank Brian Tyree Henry just above it at four. Yeah, it's short. That was a big reason why it's short. Uh, four, uh, Brian Tyree Henry. Three, I'll say Barry Kogan. Two, Brendan Gleeson. And one, I go to Kei Huey Kwan, who I adored in this movie and made me cry both times I saw it. Oh, I also cried. So good. Uh, For me, I have Brian. Originally, I had uh, Bill Nighy here. uh, And then I realized he is the lead actor nominee. So Brian Tyree Henry here. Um. And then Judd Hirsch, I get that Judd Hirsch was in this for like two minutes, but I think his two minutes of genuine, basically the one scene, the one monologue he had in uh, young Steven Spielberg's bedroom was significantly more impactful on both the film and more impactful of a performance than Brian Tyree Henry had uh, in his entire film. Uh, granted, I think a lot of that is just what was asked of them, not necessarily ability, as always. And then I have Brendan Gleeson, Barry Kyogen, 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 oh, such, such a tough name. And it then Kehui Kwan. I short round man. The story for best supporting and best lead actor this year, the parallels. Uh, I love the idea of him coming back from everything he's been through and just having such a triumphant role and does such an unfucking believable job with it in everything he was asked to do in that film. Um, absolutely phenomenal. If Barry wins, I will not be upset. He, <laughs> I almost want to say he was the best supporting character because he felt truly like a supporting character but then when you realize the reason Kei Kwan 
feels like a lead was just because of how good his role was. He kind of forces himself into that spotlight. Uh, unreal top two this year, uh, slight edge to Quan. His his career comeback is so fun to watch. Um, we'll talk about career comebacks as well with with Brendan Fraser, but um, he basically left acting because he wasn't finding parts for Asian people that he didn't find offensive. It's one of the same reasons Michelle Kwan also stepped away from American films for uh, a good long while. Uh, Michelle the parts Kwan or there. Michelle Yo? Sorry, Michelle Yo. I my mistake. Yeah. My bad. Michelle Kwan's um, a figure skater. <laughs> yep, yep. I had K. Hey Kwan in my head and Michelle Yeoh in my heart. I totally get it. Yeah. So, but one of the reasons, same thing for Michelle Yeoh. And if you look at K. Hey Kwan's page, literally, it's Encino Man in '92, classic early '90s movie, a movie called Second Time Around in 2002, which I don't know what that is, and it's 10 years after Encino Man. And then 20 years later, he gets a movie called Finding Ohana that I've never heard of before, and then. Everything everywhere all at once comes out a few months after that. Uh, it, it's so so cool. I do love that he and Frazier both were in Encino Man together, and now are both going to be accepting awards. Uh, of course, because they're both going to win because it's such a good narrative. Twenty years and, later, and Brendan Frazier and um, uh, Colin Farrell both in uh, episodes of Scrubs. Yeah. Horrible, horribly, just unbearably sad episode of Scrubs. Although Colin Farrell's is very funny. My my burning memory of him is like number one, his performance in The Lobster, and then number two, him saying the Lucky Charm slogan. <laughs> like very, very reluctantly and annoyed to uh, <sighs> JD. But uh, anyway. No, number um, one for me is just him being a menace in in Bruges and then him in SWAT in like 2002. How about him in Phone Booth? I loved that movie when I was a kid. I I did not watch it as a kid. I don't know if I would have loved it as a kid. I enjoyed it as an adult. I it was one of those movies that I think was always on TNT. Yep. Or something like that. Like, you know, one of those something. movies. Yep. I watched it constantly when I was a kid and every time loved it. Uh, anyway, we're on to I best- love. I would love if that was the film that got you into filmmaking. Phone booth. <laughs> Phone booth. It's a, it's, and you know what? Of all the films that take place in single locations, Phone Booth's got to be one of the best ones because yeah. it does that very well. Anywho. I mean- so what other options are there? Like the whale, twelve angry men, and then phone booth at number one. Um, you could depending on how tightly you want to keep strict to the one location, you could say uh dog day afternoon. Uh you could probably say women talking. Um there's more I'm sure that I'm not thinking of, but oh no, rope, only I'll only these the four. movie rope. Nope, only um, those five. The only single uh, single location films ever made. You're right. Anyway, uh, best lead actress, Corwin, your turn to start. Um, oh, the nominees, sorry. The nominees are Kate Blanchett for Tar, Anna Darmus for Blonde, Andrea Riseborough for Two Leslie, Michelle Williams for The Fablemans, and Michelle Yeoh for Everything Everywhere All at Once. 
Number five, I have Andrea Riseborough. It was a totally fine, good, but not great performance. As we discussed, definitely a case of bribery. Uh, Ana de Armas, uh, the only arguably good part of Blonde. Um, I do think she gets dragged the fuck down by that movie. Michelle Williams, and then Michelle Yeoh, and then Kate Blanchett. I know I have used this term quite liberally this episode, but going back and thinking about her performance more, I I don't know who in Hollywood today could be as much of a tour de force in that role as Kate Blanchett. She like look going back. She was a fucking monster top to bottom. Like that entire first 20 minute monologue, everything throughout that film. I, I really enjoyed Michelle Yeoh in everything everywhere all at once. I just don't know how you could say anyone out acted Kate Blanchett this year. I mean, there is a running joke amongst film Twitter that Lydia Tarr is a real person based solely on the fact that Kate Blanchett murdered in that movie. Um, she is someone who is constantly great and, and to such here. a point that you could like take her for granted because it's, you know, it's so easy to do that with people. It's so easy when you have a great actor to just look at them and be like, yeah, of course they're great. They're always great. But this is one of those performances where you go, oh, no, 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 that's right. One of the best living actors today. Um, yeah, my ranking is extremely similar. It's basically the same. I'll, I'm going to swap Riseborough and Armas. Um, I got Armas 5, Riseborough 4, um, Michelle Williams 3, Michelle Yeoh 2, and Kate Blanchett number 1. I, it's my favorite performance, I think, of the year for the Oscar nom nominated actors. It's I would agree with you. I love it so much. Um, I will not be heartbroken if she loses this award to Michelle Yeoh, who has been very underappreciated by American media for the last 20 fucking years. Um, but, and Kate Blanchett already has two Oscars, I believe. So she is certainly, I think going to earn more if she doesn't win. But if I had a vote, it would be, Lydia Tarr playing Lydia Tarr, check mark. Yes, please. Every single fucking day. Lydia so Tarr playing Lydia Tarr. Lydia Tarr playing Kate Blanchett playing Lydia Tarr. Uh, <laughs> it's just so good. All right, uh, best lead actor. I'll start on this one. Uh, we uh, the nominees are Austin Butler for Elvis, Colin Farrell for The Banshees of Inna Sharon, Brendan Fraser for The Whale, Paul Mescal for After Sun, and Bill Nighy for Living. Um, Austin Butler, I understand he thrust himself that into that performance. That does not mean I liked it. Um, so Elvis is number five. <laughs> um, I love Bill Nighy. Um, as we talked about when I talked about living, it is a really nice performance and it borrows so much of his um, persona from being a very charming old British man uh, who is very amiable in all of his previous films, constantly playing comedic roles. Uh, but I think this is a number four performance for me. 
uh, maybe number three. I might put Brendan Fraser number four. One of those two is three. One of those two is four. Uh, number two is Paul Mezcal for After Sun. It's a really, really solid performance. And uh, we talked about last week when we talked about After Sun, how I would have also nominated Frankie Corio to be here as well because of how great the interplay between those two people are. But for me, I think... Well, she's this, an actress, so I don't think she would be here. You know what I mean. Suck my dick. Um, <laughs> but I, I think this award is Colin Farrell's. He he plays that part so beautifully. He has, it is a lot of acting, which I think also helps with the voting here. if you try to think about not just the movie's quality, but also the amount of the individual contribution from each of these people, Colin Farrell has so much acting to do. You know, he has to be sad and angry and drunk and impress upon you. The minutia of these feelings while also being broad at times. And, and in terms of volume of acting without being qual- uh, corny or or lame, he's spot fucking on. So Colin Farrell's number one for me. Banshees of Sharon. For me, I did not rank Bill Nighy. I did not see living. Uh, it would be unfair for me to put him at five. Uh, but seeing as he's Extension. on the ranks, he ends up being five anyway. Uh, so sorry, Bill. Um, just just four... put Austin Butler below him. <laughs> just, <laughs> I hated that goddamn performance. I can't I, believe people liked him. It is the definition of acting a lot, but not necessarily acting well. Um, I I hate his accent. I hate that his accent is still a thing, even though he filmed this fucking at this point probably years ago. The thing, just to to intercut real quick, the thing I don't get is how can you look me in the fucking eyes and tell me that Austin Butler is doing anything better than every single Elvis impersonator in Las Vegas? (laughs) I'm 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 not being completely serious. All of those people have been doing what Austin Butler does in this movie for decades. It's not interesting what he's doing. Just because he affects the accent pretty well, I guess, and slathers himself in tanner and and uh, hair dye, does not make this a good performance. Sorry, stepping off my soapbox now. Uh, you've convinced me. Austin Butler, number one. <laughs> number three, I am putting... This one hurt me. Paul Mescal at number three. Mescal. I loved his performance. I think he deserves more. He deserves everything. He deserves the world. Number two, I'm putting Colin Farrell. I think he had an unbelievable performance that any other year in any other circumstance, I think he would be an absolute runaway for this award. And I will absolutely be going back and crying to his performance at least three more times in the next six months. And I'm putting Brendan Fraser at number one. I will say, in a vacuum, I like Colin Farrell's performance more. In the context of who Brendan Fraser is and what he has gone through before reaching this performance, he does, I think, an excellent job in the film. I I know you uh, have your considerations, but I think he did an excellent job. He carried that fucking film um, for all of the things included, I think he deserves to win this award most. 
and I think he should win this award, and I will be heartbroken if he does not win this award. Uh, just real bit of breaking news. Chloe Zhao is currently writing a screenplay for a new Dracula movie. Oh, my God. And for anyone who does not remember Chloe Zhao, she is the writer and director of Nomadland. Um, so that's really fucking cool. Just saying. But why Dracula? Listen, why not? Whatever Chloe Zhao directs, I'm going to watch without question. <laughs> I didn't need another Dracula movie in my life. If Chloe Zhao tells me I need to make watch a new Dracula movie, then I need to watch a new Dracula movie. That's all there is to it. Fair. Any anywho. Um excellent work. Uh let's do the screenplay ones next. Screenplays best uh, adapted, because this one sucks. Um I do not enjoy most of these movies, but here we are talking about them. Um, the nominees are Edward Berger, Leslie Patterson, and Ian Stockel for All Quiet on the Western Front, Ryan Johnson for Glass Onion, Kazuo Ishiguro for Living, <laughs> Jeez. Aaron Kuger, Eric Warren Singer, Christopher McQuarrie, Peter Craig, and Justin Mark for Top Gun Maverick and Sarah Polly for women talking. <laughs> what a ridiculous quantity of writers. Um, I started for the last one. So you start on this one. Yeah. Uh, okay. Uh, I didn't rank these. I just did the big five. I didn't do any writing ones. Writing is the big five. My, my friend, I did the four acting. I guess I did six. I did the four acting directing and uh, best picture. The big five colloquially known is picture, director, screenplay, actor, actress. It does not include the supporting categories. Okay. Well, I'm bad at both math and Which, yeah. memory. So yep. uh, tough shit. Go ahead. Enjoy Anywhere. talking about these. No, rank them, bitch. <laughs> oh, God. I need to pull them up. Hold on. You go ahead. I got to pull them up. All right. Fine. Um, I did not like most of these movies. I have, so I, as I said in the living episode, I have issues with that screenplay. Glass Onion, I thought was kind of fine. I really disliked All Quiet in the Western Front. Um, so, all right, so here's my ranking then. I, I can do this off the cuff because I didn't rank these either. Uh, number five <laughs> is All Quiet in the Western Front. This movie is, that movie's bad. I'm like mad it's here. I'm mad it's not made for Best Picture. It's a bad movie. It and, and the screenplay is such a big reason for why. I think it's genuinely an offensively made film. Uh, number four, I'll say is glass onion it is a perfectly fine mystery film and the mystery i think is good but it's very bloated and the characters aren't as compelling as the original film uh number three i'll go to living um it's a shot for shot remake of one of the greatest movies of all time so obviously the screenplay can't be bad it's just not very interesting Number four, I'll say, is Top Gun Maverick because it is just the first one, but done again. Uh, and I would give the award here to Women Talking. Um, as much as I had issues with the film and I had issues with the screenplay, for one, this crop of competition is not very good. Uh, but for another thing, if Sarah Polly is not going to be nominated for directing, which I thought to be much more engaging than the, the, the than the screenplay, I would think this is the award that she should win. Um, so Women Talking. All right. Uh, I'm just finish 
Uh, all right. Uh, not ranking living. Didn't watch it. Number four, I'm putting Top Gun. I don't think it was a necessarily well-written film. Uh, it was an exciting action one, but I thought the script and actual narrative kind of sucked. Um, you mean you didn't want to see them fight the so, enemy? No, I did not want to watch them get shot down by the enemy, find the exact make and model of jet that was used in the first film, steal it, and then shoot down the enemy again. Um, it's like the only fucking thing I can remember from the movie is him and Rooster just like in the snow. It's like, yes. oh, hey, look, Jets. I know how to fly that. Let's go get it. And it's just like, oh, God, such a bad turn. The worst in my Shyamalan twist. If the movie wins best Oscar, though, or best screenplay, though, it deserves it for the fact that they said, you know what we haven't seen in a while? Um, we have not seen a sex scene. <laughs> scene. No, we have not seen a sex scene with Jennifer Connelly in years. We got to bring those back, baby. <laughs> and you know what? They are right. It's it is a Hollywood staple that has been sorely missed. Yeah, not since Requiem for a Dream. <laughs> uh, uh, <laughs> I haven't eaten dinner yet, and you just ruined my dinner. Um. Anywho, well, if you're a real sicko, it would be increase your appetite, but go right ahead. Number three, I am putting Glass Onion. Uh, I, I thought it was rather predictable and not nearly up to par with Ryan Johnson's first. And then I'm putting All Quiet on the Western Front. I don't care what you say about that film. It was very good, and I very much enjoyed it. And then you are correct. Women Talking is going to run away with this award. Yes, sir. All right. So then that brings us to original screenplay, which is a much tougher field. This is a really like uh, I have no clue where this one will go in terms of the voting. Um, Corwin, do you feel as though you can start on this one? Do you want me to start this one as well? No, give me a sec. All right. So the nominees are Daniel Kwan and Daniel Scheinart for Everything Everywhere All at Once. Martin McDonough for the Banshees of Inisherin, Steven Spielberg and Tony Kushner for the Fablemans, Ruben Ostland for Triangle of Sadness, and Todd Field for Tar. My rankings would be as such, and keep in mind, I like all of these movies. <laughs> this is this is genuinely a difficult ranking to do. Number five, I would say, is probably Triangle of Sadness. Just because of the screenplays, I think that one is the least. I would say number four would go to The Banshees of Inisherin, which feels nuts. But I think I would take the Fableman screenplay over that screenplay. Um, number two, sorry, because number three is The Fableman's. Number two, I would pick everything everywhere all at once because nine number one is Tar, Tar, Tar tar baby <laughs> i cannot express how high i am on this movie and how big of a reason not just the performance of uh cape blanchette is but this screenplay is ridiculously tight it's not just about the direction of of, of the the plot and the emotionality expressed there within but the meticulousness uh and the research that went into this like it, it's not just a well-made film from a storytelling perspective, but it's a fucking, it's a fucking research paper. And Todd Field, who is a 
like jazz musician, like can came up playing jazz trombone, like really borrows from a lot of uh, not just his own expertise, but the expertise of other uh, musicians and musical uh, scholars that he knows in his life. It's incredibly well done, well researched, and again, beautifully, beautifully composed as a piece of storytelling. So tar all the way, baby. Corwin, give me some rankings. All right. So quickly here, uh, five, Triangle of Sadness. Uh, I think this is a very clear number five. Uh, and then at number four, I'm putting Fablemans. Um, guess what, Steven Spielberg? You lose a point because this is just your life. You didn't have to write that much. It's just like, <laughs> hey, here's what happened. Fuck off. Uh, number three, I'm putting everywhere... Uh, everything, everywhere, all at everywhere, once. all the time, everything. <laughs> um, I feel like it had some unbelievable peaks, but had enough valleys and enough parts that I didn't necessarily agree with, and kind of was trying to poke hold. I I, I re remember too many points where I was like, ah, I just I'm not on board with it to kind of put it any higher even though my gut reaction first looking at these was to put it at number one um, and then number two I'm putting Banshees which leaves number one for arguably the most important composer of our generation and if you look at it from a colloquial sense possibly all time Lydia Tarr who I know it says Todd Field but I feel like this story could only by, be written by someone uh, with her level of artistic interpretation. Um, this doesn't seem like something Todd Field would be able to write as such, you know, a dumb, silly dummy. Uh, this is only the work of someone like Lydia Tarr. It's true. Only she can masterfully compose this type of uh, genius. Um it is cool to see Steven Spielberg here because believe it or not, this is his first nomination for screenplay of his no career. Kidding. kidding, not in included. This is this is his first screenplay nomination. Good for him. Every one of his other award nominations has been for either uh, direction or picture, which we'll talking about both uh, later on. Honestly, um, I really enjoy seeing these up and coming filmmakers, you know, getting recognition from the Academy. Finally, someone's giving them a shot. Yeah, so many of Stephen King's writing credits are for the Medal of Honor video games, which is wait, whoa, 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 what? Start over. Stephen King, Stephen King, Steven Spielberg. I am fucking up last names left, right, and center today. Uh, created the Medal of Honor video games. I guess they're they must be based off of Saving Private Ryan in some kind of way. Uh, but yeah, he created the Medal of Honor video games and is credited as the writer of those games. That's fucking insane and awesome yes yes it is i can't believe close encounters of a third kind didn't get a screenplay nomination that's wild to me i'm so surprised 50 of his films didn't make he didn't well make he didn't you know he didn't saying. write a lot of the screenplays for his movies that's the difference uh... the only big movies that people would know that he wrote like no one knows sugarland express or anything that comes before it really close encounters he wrote the Poltergeist he wrote, which is interesting because he didn't direct that one, but he wrote The Goonies. Um, and then he like there's nothing, there's no movies here 
until you get to AI artificial intelligence, which he did write, although that is a started project by Stanley Kubrick that um, I was about to say Stephen King again, Spielberg picked up after Kubrick died. Um, but still, he is credited as the writer of that screenplay. Uh, and then then it's the Fablements, like 21 years well, later. like He doesn't write a lot of his movies. Good for him. Yeah, interesting. interesting. He's pretty good at what he does. He's so fucking good at what he does. Um, I want to, while we're here, uh, go through some of the award categories that I have seen all the films of that I know you have not. You <laughs> go to town? I feel like you're about to say more than that, but I guess you weren't. Um, uh, I just finished watching all the movies in this category today, but best achievement in cinematography. Uh, the nominees are James Friend for All Quiet on the Western Front, Mandy Walker for Elvis, Florian Hoffmeister for Tar, um, Darius Kanji for Bardo, False Chronicle of a Handful of Truths, and Roger Deakins for Empire of Light. Um, my rankings of these will be as such. Um, number five, um, just because Fuckem is is probably Elvis. Um, they I don't remember this. It's tough when the editing is so maximalist to really remember any of the actual shots in the film because they're constantly leaving. You know what I mean? So it it's it's almost kind of weird to have it's a weird juxtaposition because I don't remember the cinematography from that movie because the editing kind of forces you to not. If you're constantly operating in hard quick cuts and split screen, then the composition of the shots there within and and the lighting and what have you is going to become kind of secondary. So that's five. Number four is all quiet on the Western front because fuck it. Um, Number three is Bardo. Uh, Let me just say, I watched Bardo today. It is two hours and 45 minutes long. Corbin, don't watch Bardo. Um, It's not good. It um, it's Alejandro Inarritu's newest film. We've talked about him before. He's a really good director. He has won a handful of Oscars, or it's just the one now. I don't know. He's won four. Um, he he made uh The Revenant. He made Birdman. He made Babel. Like he's a big boy director. Um, and this movie is so far up his own ass it's nuts it's nuts the cinematography is really good because it's a very inventively shot film um but you can be it's almost like hey what if uh alejandro hodorowski made a movie today with like a budget but also the screenplay's bad that's this movie um and now i'm caught because I obviously want to give this award to Tar because Tar's awesome. <laughs> uh, but I also recently watched Empire of Light. And while Empire of Light is also not fantastic, um, it is written and directed by Sam Mendes, who Sam Mendes is a big director. He's been directing movies forever. Um, he won an Oscar for American Beauty back in like 2000. You know, he's been making movies, good movies forever. 1917, um, man, excellent film. So 1917 was the first movie he wrote, if you can believe that this is only the wow. second film he's written empire of light. Um, 1917, uh, great. And, but it, it, it is very like singular minded. 
and in empire of light is trying to tell a much more like gentle and emotional story and it falls flat on its face the acting is really really lovely um but the screenplay is dog shit however roger deacon's cinematography in it is incredible the film looks so luscious even the parts of the theater that the film takes place in that are like degraded and and decaying are filmed so lovingly that it somehow becomes like like a portraiture it it is gorgeous gorgeously shot so i think i would go number two to our number one empire of light but that might also be some recency bias because i just watched that movie today um editing the nominees are Matt Vill- Villa, Villa and Jonathan Redman for Elvis, uh, Paul Rogers for Everything Everywhere All at Once, Mikkel E.G. Nielsen for The Banshees of Inna Sharon, Eddie Hamilton for Top Gun Maverick, and Monica Willie for Tar. Corwin, you watched all these movies. Any thoughts? Um, Man, I haven't thought about the editing of any of these films in a long time. Uh, my gut says Everything Everywhere. Um, possibly followed by Tar. Uh, Elvis getting a nomination is fucking disgusting, and I hate the Academy for it. This is like, like the one I kind of <sighs> award I kind of get because it's almost like a, we're so sorry. It feels like the Ana de Armas kind of thing where it's like we're nominating you because we feel so bad for all the work you had to do. These people no, must have been tortured. Like you know the the famous scene from Taken where there's 27 cuts for Liam Neeson to jump over that fence. Yeah, like Taken 6, the the, the Takening. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that was every second of this film, and I, it's fucking unfathomable that you would say, oh, that's a lot of editing. Okay, it gets nominated. Yeah. Uh, I, I really Let's want some, to talk about this I don't, I don't, I don't want any one. pity nominations. This is the Academy Awards. This should be... I know it's not, but it should have some level of Oh god! Now I'm thinking about how the academy is just fucking washed. Awful! It's awful. Dead. Um, I would pick Tar for reasons, though. I would pick Tar for the scene that takes place at Juilliard alone. Like that scene is so incredibly edited. Um, the whole film is fantastically shot, and which in- includes the dramatic tension of all the the cutting. But oh um, my god, what? Uh, this is a complete non sequitur. So I'll tell you after, but uh continue go ahead uh yeah i think i think you're right i think it's either tar or everything everywhere all at once top gun maverick and banshees of Sharon somewhere in between it might go to elvis because of the volume of editing i can't even begin to imagine what those project files must have looked like um but i would i would pick my my boy lydia tar so what is your non-sequitur uh the bears just traded the first round pick or first overall pick I saw that, but it's the wrong podcast, so I was saving it. <laughs> I was just so shocked by it, I, I couldn't hold it. For a wide receiver and four other picks, it's a really weird trade. We will be definitely talking about that in broader scope later. All right, continue. Holy shit. All right, I, I understand I'm talking about a lot of movies, but I watched all these movies, so God damn it, I'm going to talk about them. <laughs> um, best documentary feature, I watched all these movies as well. Uh, the nominees are Simon Lengren, Wilmot, and Monica Hellstrom for A House Made of Splinters. Shaunak Sen, 
Amon Man and Teddy Lifer for All That Breathes. Laura Poitras, um, Howard Gertler, John S. Lyons, Nan Golden, and Yanni Golijov for All the Beauty and the Bloodshed. Sarah Dosa, Shane Boris, Ina Fitchman for Fire of Love. And Daniel Rower, Odessa Ray, Diane Becker, Melanie Miller, and Shane Boris for Navalny. Okay, so it's a really broad-ranging set of films. Corbin, did you see any of these, just out of curiosity? I don't think so. I kind of okay. zoned out looking for more information on this NFL trade, so I, I didn't actively listen to what they were. That's okay. Um, It's a broad-ranging set of subjects. I'd have to say, I usually... I don't check in on documentaries except for the Oscars, unless there's something specific to one of my interests, because... I don't like watching documentaries that are about a subject I don't already kind of care about, um, which I know is not the point of documentaries, but whatever. I'm my own guy. Um, But I felt like this year, especially this category kind of sucked. Number five is House Made of Splinters, which I think is genuinely a disrespectful film, and I am shocked it's here. The film essentially follows a handful of kids from an orphanage in Ukraine whose parents have been uh, lost to varying degrees within the Russo-Ukrainian conflict, some of whom are lost to death and fighting in the the, the conflict or um, not from fighting, just just a casualty, and some of whom uh, like alcoholism. And the film has nothing to say. The film is just painful, painful encounters and shots of children experiencing the worst days of their lives. There's several moments that you have interiority to that are so personal and so heartbreaking that there's no reason for you to be watching them. It is exploitation at its most disgusting form because it's exploiting the most vulnerable people, vulnerable of among us, which is fucking orphans, man. It's disgusting. I really did not enjoy this movie. Fuck it. That number five. Number four, I have to put Navalny, which is like a CNN films documentary about Alexei Navalny. And it is one of the most boring movies about an interesting subject I've ever seen. I don't think Alexei Navalny is an overly interesting guy necessarily, but they do have some really interesting moments in the documentary because part of it is centered around the poisoning of Alexei Navalny, which is a fascinating story that they, you know, kind of go through the motions of and try to capture audio of some of the guys who were involved in the poisoning on Mike and they do it, which is an incredible moment in the film, but it's not especially interesting because Alexei Navalny isn't especially interesting of a man is He's basically famous for being not Vladimir Putin and willing to go to jail for that. And it's like, I I appreciate the need to document these types of things as historical preservation. But so much of the documentary feels like a guy who has a little bit of megalomania being like, point the camera at me. And he basically all but says that in the documentary. He basically says, like, I want this to be interesting. I want people to be interested by it. I want this to be a cool documentary. I want it to be a good movie. And it's like, that's bad. Like, you shouldn't have that attitude. And the filmmakers are just kind of feeding into that. I don't think it's very well done. I don't think it's a very interesting movie. All the breathe is boring. It's fine. It's about birds. Number three, it's fine. 
Um, number two, and now we're down to the two documentaries I actually really liked. Um, number two, I'll say, is All the Beauty and the Bloodshed, which I really want to pick as number one. But I think for a common viewer, it might not be as accessible or interesting. Um, All the Beauty and the Bloodshed is about the Sackler family and their effect on America. For anyone who is unaware, the Sackler family is the family that owns like Purdue Pharmaceuticals, who started the opioid crisis. Um, If you've ever heard of OxyContin and the ravaging effects that that has had on the American populace over the last 30 years, you can thank the Sackler family. Well, the Sackler family donated, um, owned and donated a significant amount of art to museums all over the world. And if you name a museum that you know as being a big famous museum, they have given money and art to them and their names have been on those buildings for years. The Met in New York City, Sackler money, Sackler art in the in the house. Uh, the Louvre in Paris, Sackler names on the building. And so what Nan Golden, who is a famous photographer um, and former drug addict, is, is trying to accomplish in this documentary is to, one, it's a little bit of an in memoriam of those lost to the um, opioid crisis during her time and part of you know her struggles with as a person with addiction. And then uh, trying to draw those lines to directly to the Sackler family and to try to get these um, museums to stop accepting money from the Sackler family and to take their names off of the buildings. Uh, it's a very affecting documentary. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, I really want to pick this as number one. No, fuck it. It's number one. I I really... The opioid crisis is such a devastating topic, and this film does such a great job, I think, at one of the most heinous parts of the art... Pointing a light at one of the most heinous parts of the art community, which is that there it, it certainly feels as though there's no one more exploited by the capitalist system than artists because you are at the behest and judged solely based on the wants and whims of the ultra wealthy and that exploitation has often been extreme and violent you know it's not just every major national emergency has often had direct ties to artistic communities the aids crisis the crack epidemic and generally speaking, the opioid epidemic ravaged artistic communities at the behest of larger, more monetarily uh, uh, infused systems and individuals. And this film is really trying to draw those connections, I think, very affectingly. Uh, Fire of Love, I guess, will go number two. Really, really sweet. Very, very sweet um, documentary about two volcanologists Volcanologists, I, I think, um, who study volcanoes until one of those volcanoes kills them. The footage in the film, which is all taken from their time, it's all, um, I forget what the word I'm looking for is. It's all it's all footage that they captured themselves during the, I guess, uh, 70s and 80s or 80s and 90s. Um, it's fucking gorgeous. It's absolutely gorgeous. The voiceover is very affecting in its odd, like, monotony. And it's a very sweet story that I think is very lovingly told. Number two. 
how's the trade looking, Corwin? And the volcano rescue from Wakari, it was. What? What was the name of the one you were just talking about? Fire of Love. Fire of Love. I uh, I googled volcano documentary, and the other one came up first. This one looks so much better. It's gorgeous. I mean, even if you watched it on mute, know. you're gonna have a, an amazing time. It's gorgeous. I think I might watch that tonight. It's on Hulu. Very, very easily available. Um. Okay. Best animated feature film. I watched all these shits too. Uh, <laughs> nominated are uh, Guillermo del Toro, Mark Gustafson, Gary Unger, and Alexander Bulkley for Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio. Dean Fleischerkamp, Elizabeth Holm, Andrew Goldman, Caroline Kaplan, and Paul Mezzi for Marcel the Shell with Shoes On, which we talked about on the show. Joel Crawford and Mark Swift for Puss in Boots, The Last Wish. Chris Williams and Jed Schlanger for The Sea Beast. And Domi Shi and Lindsay Collins for Turning Red. Um, number five here is The Sea Beast. The Sea Beast is not very good. It is, it feels like a ripoff of every animated like Pixar how to train your dragon movie you've ever seen. It is the movie that seems to exist in the background of TV shows you're watching where you go, that's not a real movie, but it is. And it's not very good. In fact, not a lot of it makes any fucking sense, but whatever. Um, Number four, I will say is Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio, which is sad to say. No, actually, number four is Turning Red. Turning Red's not very good. Um, Turning Red is unfortunately not very good. Like, every act of it gets worse. Act one is so good. And then act two is kind of faltering, and then the end of the movie is just not interesting and kind of really lame and so corny and cheesy in a way that Pixar movies usually aren't. It's really unfortunate. And maybe that's part of me having higher expectations because it is a Pixar film, but it really, I think, soured as it went on. Um, it like just, you're just racist. I might be. The we all are a little bit on the inside where it counts. Uh, number three, I'll say is Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio, which drags and I think loses itself in its sprawling plot. And Guillermo del Toro's insistence on having almost every movie set under a fascist regime, um, which this film is, uh, it is missing an emotional core that I think it desperately wants to have and kind of doesn't in all of its sprawl. Uh, Number three is Puss in Boots, The Last Wish, which I think is hilarious that I am ranking it this high because it's actually very good. The Shrek franchise is still putting out quality films it's crazy man uh antonio banderas never stopping and then we talked about on the podcast it is the one to beat i hope it wins i think it will win it's it's such an interesting movie marcel dechelle with shoes on number one Um, I did watch all the best animated short films as well. Uh, quick ranking there. Number five, My Year of Dicks. Number four, The Flying Sailor. Number three, The Boy, The Mole, The the Fox, and The Horse. Number two, really good movie I recommend everyone watch. 
an ostrich told me the world is fake and I think I believe it. It's super quick. These are short films. It's super quick, very funny, very inventive. I liked it a whole lot. And the number one is Ice Merchants, which is absolutely fantastic. Has no dialogue in it. Super quick, like 14 minute movie. Watch it. It's a good time. Okay. I think that covers it. Of all the categories I've seen in all the movies of so far, I hope to watch more of these uh, between now and the um, the ceremony, but we will see. Instead, let's move on to the last two categories we have. Let's go to Best Achievement in Directing. The nominees are Daniel Kwan and Daniel Scheinart for Everything Everywhere All at Once, Martin McDonough for The Banshees of Inisherin. Ruben Ostland for Triangle of Sadness, Steven Spielberg for The Fablemans, and Todd Field for Tar. Corbin, I talked for so long. You can talk now. Gladly. So let me burn through this so we could hear your magical voice once again. Number five, which is beginning to turn into a bit of a uh, common theme here, is The Triangle of Sadness. Just staying uh, right down at the bottom of the list. Um, and then Steven Spielberg, The Fablements, um, was fine, was good. Just not quite up to par as The Daniels for Everything Everywhere All at Once at number three. Martin McDonough at number two for Banshees, which leaves only Lydia Tarr at number one with some help from Todd Field for her... Uh, Video autobiography, Tar. Um, it was kind of really only a debate between everything, Banshees and Tar. And even then, it really was only ever Tar. Um, as much as I enjoyed the directing of all three of those films, goddamn, like Tar is just such leaps and bounds ahead of the others. It's so well-constructed and well like it's so meticulous with the way it's shot and the way it's set um, you know that opening monologue the way he devised that and the way he basically presented it as this wikipedia article that happens to be written and recited by lydia tar um he he did such an excellent job and I I don't recognize the the name. It it's something that you know, usually, it's very quick to jump to the Steven Spielbergs or Martin McDonoughs as, you know, the guys. But he he fucking killed it. Little I, children I, eyes. He did eyes wide shut. He was an he actor in eyes wide it. shut. Oh yeah. okay. He was he was an actor turned uh, director. Actually, in large part because of Eyes Wide Shut, because he was going to get out of acting. And Kubrick was like, no, 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 my friend, come be in my movie. Shadow me while I direct this movie and I'll show you how to direct good movies. And he was like, thank you, Mr. Kubrick. And then made if anyone hasn't seen In the Bedroom and Little Children, they are fantastic movies. Like, really, they're very, very good. They were both Oscar nominated films like neither of them collected any awards for Todd Field, but they're both really really well done um like he's been out of the game Marissa for a while. Tomei, you got it i'm in they're good movies todd field 
does what he does real good. Um, sure does do it. Uh, for me, for directing, number five is going to be Ruben Oslin. <laughs> Sorry, Ruben. Uh, number four, I will say, is Martin McDonough. I don't think the direction is what makes that film stand out. I'll, I would say it's the screenplay and the acting. Just no shade to Martin McDonough. Um, but if we're trying to hone in on directing, I do not think that's where it lies. Number three is really tough because at this point is when this, I think it's really neck and neck. It's easy to write off Spielberg here, I think, and I think he is going to be my number three, but that film lives and dies on it, on its directing. And Spielberg directs the shit out of that movie because it is a film about directing. And so not only does the acting have to be able to reflect that, but everything has to feel as organic as possible. It, it's, 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 uh, it's a hat on a hat and it has to feel right. It has to feel cinematic behind the scenes in a way that is captivating as a story and not some kind of like BTS kind of, uh, you know, it, DVD extra. And he, he kills it. He absolutely kills it. But I do think it is number three behind the Daniels. And then number one is Lydia Tarr as Todd Field as as Lydia Tarr. Um, Todd Field's so fucking good at this. I hope he wins every Oscar available to him. It's fantastic. It's such good work. All right. That brings us to the big one. There's so many names here. So many of them. Here we go. Best picture. The nominees are Malt Grun- Grunert for All Quiet on the Western Front. James Cameron and John Landau for Avatar The Way of Water. Baz Luhrmann, Catherine Martin, Gail Berman, Patrick McCormick, and Shoiler Weiss for Elvis. Daniel Kwan, Daniel Scheinart, and Jonathan Wang for Everything Everywhere All at Once. Graham Broadbent, Peter Chernin, and Martin McDonough for The Banshees of Inna Sharon. Christy McCasco-Krieger, uh, Steven Spielberg and Tony Kushner for The Fablemans. Tom Cruise, Christopher McQuarrie, David Elson, and Jerry Bruckheimer for Top Gun Maverick. Eric Hemendorf and Philip Bober for Triangle of Sadness. Todd Field, Alexandra Milchin, and Scott Lambert for Tar. And finally, Jeremy Kleiner, Dee Dee Gardner, and Francis McDormand for Woman Talking. Corwin. Give me your ranking. Oh, boy. Number 10. Do you want to take a guess at what it is? Is it Elvis? It is Elvis. It's such fucking dog shit. I hate that it was nominated. I don't get why it was nominated. Stop liking this movie for the love of God. Number nine is Avatar. Uh, A movie I forgot was here. Yeah. yeah, not nearly as bad as Elvis, but still, uh, God, why is it here? And then for the films that matter, number eight. You know what? Let's uh, do. You want to break this up, bottom five and top five, just so that we're not going through all ten. And then, no, I don't. I want to hear all ten, baby. Okay, fine. Number eight, Triangle of Sadness. This movie made me a triangle of sadness. I wish I came up with something better before I said it instead of just going off the cuff. That was fucking hard. Horrid, not hard. It was incredibly easy to come up with something that bad. Number seven. You're not going to like this, Josh, but it's the Fablemans. It just didn't grip me. 
but what did grip me fast planes and a mysterious enemy top gun maverick at number six and then women talking at number five go fuck yourself everything everywhere all at once is breaking into the top four you can suck my dick number three i fucked that up uh all Quiet on the Western Front was at number four. Everything Everywhere All at Once was at three. I, said, I don't you know why like you want everything. to go fuck myself. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> this is such a poorly planned readout of these films. I've had like an hour and a half to prepare for this, and it's just completely flopped. But anyway, two is Banshees of Insharon, and number one is Tar. It's just Tar is not stoppable. Lydia Tar is everything, everywhere, all at once. She is, she is just a shoe in. I I I hesitate to say a shoe in because I think everywhere, everywhere, everything, everywhere once has shown it's so it's won so many awards and it's it the feels favorite. like it's rolling. Yeah, well, it's not the favorite. <laughs> it's not Yorgos Lanthimos <laughs> is the favorite, but it is really good. Um. My my number 10, 10, 10 to 1. Uh, number 10, All Quiet on the Western Front. Fuck that movie. It's it's the worst movie that came out this year. Uh, number number 9. Number 9 is Avatar The Way of Water. I fucking hate those goddamn movies. I I, I feel like the whole bottom three for, for me is you either loved it or you hated it. Like, I haven't heard anyone be indifferent on these movies. And I love James Cameron so much. I was just like thinking about the Terminator movies the other day because I'm listening to a podcast that's talking about the Terminator movies and I was just like getting so excited about how much I loved those and how much I loved uh, True Lies and how much I loved Aliens and fucking James Cameron these movies suck so much ass um, number eight is then Elvis which is so bad I don't get how Elvis wasn't number 10 for you like what is that's how much about this that's film? how much i hated those other two movies it's not that i liked elvis more than them i just hated those other two movies so much more than i hated elvis the hubris um so that's number that's number eight number seven for me is probably going to be um top gun maverick solid movie it's nothing special which is fine. Like it's a really it's a really fun movie. But it's not like a groundbreakingly good movie because it is basically the same thing as the original Top Gun movie from 40 years ago done again. See Josh, which is what you're fine. forgetting is I've seen that movie 15 times. Of course it's the best movie ever made. That's what I'm saying. Is it like it's a fun movie. It's just that it's not like there's nothing it does better than I think all the other movies that are like this. It's it's as if you made Ski School, the, the 1980s uh, ski slope movie that It's Always Sunny did a spoof episode of. If you gave that movie, I don't know, $100 million to make like the dramatic version of it. It's all it is. It doesn't matter. Um, that's number seven. Number six, I'll say is Triangle of Sadness. Number five is Women Talking. Number four, I'll say, is uh, Defablemans. Um, number three, Banshees of Inisherin. Number two, Everything Everywhere All the Time. 
Number one's fucking tar, baby. I look, I, I'm never going to be if all of the categories tar loses is to everything everywhere all at once. I will not be disappointed, but I am rooting for tar so hard as we I, all should be. It's so good. It's so good. It is the it is such a great film that is trying to convey subtlety um, and emotion without being overly difficult of a watch. Like that can be one to make a musical musical comparison. That can be one of the tough things about getting into certain degrees of jazz. Like not everyone's going to get bebop right away. So it's going to be tough to have someone's first record be a bebop record. You know, it's a little bit challenging to listen to, even if it is really good. And Tar is like, no, 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 no. We'll start out with something much more simple. We'll start you with, with, with uh, I don't know, like a Freddie Hubbard record, who I think still might technically be up, but he's a little bit easier to listen to. Or like Bill Evans or some shit. You know, like we're going to ease you into the ideas and concepts while still having such amazing technical proficiency, still having such emotionality. Like it's so good. It's so good. Tar with the accent. The accent is also half the reason we should be voting for this movie. More movies need accent marks in their titles. Um, my favorite part of Tar is we realize her name is actually Linda Tar T A R R, and that just wasn't cool and fancy enough, so she changed it. So good. It's so good. It's so good. So it's so good. good. All right. I'm so glad we burned through the best picture because that could have taken ages. Yeah, no. Well, it helps that, you know, we do all the other categories first and, of course, end up talking about some of the reasons why we liked yeah. these movies um, as well. Obviously, we skipped over a bunch of categories like the music ones and costume and makeup and all that stuff. We we don't. We, what do we know? Well, we know so little. We barely know anything. We definitely don't know anything about costume design, you know. So, yeah. Well, what do you want? Um some of these movies are good. Some of them are bad. Don't watch Bardo. Bardo's really bad. Watch Tar. Watch it twice. Tell your friends. Um, are you going to watch the ceremony, Corbin? No. Me neither. I will be keeping up with it on my phone. It's so, so easy to just check Twitter every 15 minutes rather than watch like a two-hour ceremony. The thing that I don't get and it's never two hours. It's like almost always three and a half or four. The thing I don't get about it, and I talk about this every time we talk about the Oscars, is that it doesn't need to be a whole rigmarole. It doesn't need to have a bunch of skits and and acts and you know all of the the dressing that it has, because no one is no one's watching the ceremony who doesn't like movies. So if you just make the show about the movies everyone who's watching is probably gonna be pretty happy about it because there's no it's not like it's the um new year's rock and eve where everyone's just kind of tuning in to whichever station will eventually show the ball dropping and you're trying to keep people on your station it's it's the oscars you know what i mean there's no one who's been checked out of movies all year who's like you know what i'm gonna watch you know i'm gonna spend four hours watching tonight the oscars Nobody, nobody, nobody's doing it. So stop. No, dude, I literally spend all year long listening to the same, like, four records. And then every year, turn on the Grammys to see what's new and popular. Yeah, it, right? 
Yeah, it's so fucking dumb. So fucking stupid. Whatever. Um, yeah. Yep, yep, yep. So that's uh them's the breaks. We are we're not gonna pick new movies for us to watch yet. Um we'll our next episode will I guess talk about the Oscars a little bit. Unless do you want to pick movies for the next episode? Double up. Um do some post Oscars uh, talk and talk about a couple movies. I don't have one on deck, so let's just do post Oscars and then we'll decide then. Sounds like a plan to me. So in that case, as you're listening to this, it'll be uh, either Friday night or Saturday morning. The Oscars are on Sunday. So um, we'll be, we'll come Monday morning. We'll have full awareness of who won all the awards. Uh, and if there's any other uh, interesting things that happen to them, maybe they'll get best picture wrong again this year. Who knows? Anything could happen, folks. It's live television and a bunch of people that you probably wouldn't like in real life voting for things that might actually personally matter to you, like award ceremonies. So anything's up for grabs um if you want to follow the show on twitter you can do so at big screen juice if you'd like to follow corn on twitter you can do so at corn heller and if you'd like to follow myself on twitter you can do so at joshua d tracy if you want to send emails to the show you can do so at juicing the big screen at gmail.com and until next time y'all have a good one yeah.